For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive with them, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. May God bless the reading of his word. You may be seated. Thank you, Bruce. Well, we have been... Hello again. Good to see you guys again. Uh, We have been in a series entitled, You Will Be My Witnesses, uh, which is an exposition of the book of Acts, and uh, we're just kind of creeping through it. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And uh, last week, I taught through Acts 1, uh, 2 through 5 is what we focused on. Uh, During that time, we discovered really four key things that Jesus did to prepare the disciples to be his witnesses in the world. Uh, They were that he gave them commands through the Holy Spirit. He uh, met with them repeatedly for 40 days, revealing himself to them, showing that he was resurrected, proving to them that he had come back, and he was kind of in this cycle of doing that and teaching them and revealing himself to them. And he taught them about the kingdom of God over and over and over. He told them to wait in Jerusalem uh, for the coming of the promised Holy Spirit, which was extremely important. Um, All of these things were preparatory for uh, them going out to be witnesses. These are things that they had to do uh, before they could go out and and, uh, begin to proclaim the gospel uh, throughout that section of the world and beyond. So we, we talked about those things in great detail. And as I said, if you here, you could go online and to our website and, and hear that sermon. This morning, we will be focusing on Acts 1, 6 to 11. And uh, so you might want to go ahead and get your writing utensils ready and your note sheet. Hopefully, everyone got a, a bulletin or note sheet, whatever we want to call that thing, so that you can uh, take some notes and you're going to want to. You're going to be blessed today. God's Word is, man, it's just, it's just incredible. Uh, What I'm going to go ahead and do is I'm going to read our main section, and then I'll pray once more, and then we'll begin to look at it together, dissect it, kind of tear into it, and see what God has for us today. We'll get to work, as uh, old Driscoll says up there, we're going to get to work. So let let me go ahead and read our section, Acts 1, 6 to 11. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when He had said these things, as they were looking on, He was lifted up, and a cloud took Him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Father, we just want to lift up this time to you again and 
uh, ask that you would help us to focus in this glorious moment. Uh, God, that you would help to put away with the distractions of this world and all these responsibilities and things that we have in our lives and uh, the good, the bad, and the ugly things that we have there, that you would help just to rid our minds and hearts of those things now so that we may learn from you, Jesus. You are the minister, Jesus. You are the teacher here. And so we want to have an encounter with you, and we want to hear from you. And so may you also receive all the glory and praise and, and all the love for your word and for what you're going to teach here today. It's all about you, Jesus Christ. It's all about your gospel. And so we love you. Open our hearts and minds to you now. May we learn from you. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Let's go ahead and begin to look at it. We're going to start with verse 6. It says, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? At this point in the gospel narrative, because that's really what's happening, we have the historical narrative that's playing out, but what Luke is doing is he's talking about the gospel narrative again, the very end of kind of the ministry of Jesus before he ascended. So this is really the gospel narrative that we're looking at. Uh, At this point in that gospel narrative, Jesus has led his disciples to the Mount of Olives. Um, The Mount of Olives was a significant place for a lot of reasons. A couple of them that stood out to me as I was studying is um, this is the place where Jesus, uh, before entering into um, Jerusalem, uh, before His Passion Week, this is the place that He paused and wept over the city of Jerusalem before entering it. He wept uh, profusely, bitterly there over the city because He knew that uh, its inhabitants, His people, the Jews, would... and others that were there would basically reject him and, and beat him to a pulp and put him on a cross. And, uh, and then he also realized that their judgment was fixed. He knew what was going to happen maybe 40 years later with the sacking of Jerusalem and these things. And so what does he do on the Mount of Olives? He goes there and he weeps over the city before he enters during his Passion Week. So that's one kind of key thing that happened at this location Um, It was also the place where Jesus was transfigured uh, in front of three of the disciples and two witnesses, um, which was a phenomenal event, if you've ever read that in the gospel narrative, um, this moment that Jesus takes, you know, Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, and they're up there, and there's this experience unlike any before where he's like transfigured before them, his face, you know, uh, changed, and, and his clothing became brighter than any white clothing that had ever been seen, and, and these men were just completely spellbound and blown away by this experience. And so this also happened on, uh, on the mountain there, and that is going to be key in understanding some of the things that are happening in, in verse 6. Um, uh, one of the things that perplexed me as I read 6 was, uh, why would they ask that question? You know, you've got this last moment with Jesus here in the flesh, so to speak, and, and they're asking him, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel right now? Is that what you're going to do? And so that uh, caused me to think uh, in several ways and to ponder different things. And I have some reasons why they probably asked it. And I'll just go through kind of them and then we'll get into some meaty teaching on it. But I think that it could be that they, they were aware of his leaving. And maybe this was their way of asking when he would return. 
in some way. I don't know if that's accurate, but it seems like, okay, something's about to happen here. We, we, we have a sense that you're going to go. And so them asking, are you going to restore the kingdom? Are you going to stay with us a little bit more? Are you going to come back later? I mean, what's the deal? Um, I think they were a little perplexed as to what was really playing out. That's obvious. So it could have been that they just wanted to know maybe when he was going to return or if he was going to do something more in that moment. Um, it could be that they wanted to see Jesus uh, fully vindicated in a earthly sense. Um, you know, Jesus had been betrayed by people and even by them to some degree, and he had been beaten and, and suffered and died on a cross, and then he went into a tomb, and then he was resurrected. But it could be that they're thinking, when are you going to sock it to him? You know, when are you going to be vindicated? If you set up your kingdom, that means that you're going to judge all your enemies, and you're going to basically make them your footstool and destroy them. Is that something you're going to do now? Is that something you're going to do in the new future? Maybe they wanted to see him fully vindicated. I doubt it, but, but it could have been something like that. Maybe it was their nationalistic zeal. Um, you know, these men had this upbringing, and their upbringing was that when the Messiah comes, he's going to smash all their enemies, and He's going to conquer and he's going to establish his kingdom forever and the Jews are just going to be right there with him and it's really for them and, you know, and so they really wanted to see Israel vindicated for lack of better words. They wanted to see Israel restored and so maybe it was their upbringing and their zeal as Jews. I mean, Jews are still waiting for this today. Uh, This is primarily why they rejected Jesus as their Messiah, because he didn't do what they thought he was supposed to do when he came. He's not supposed to get beaten to a pulp and die on a cross. And I mean, that's the worst imaginable death in that day and age. To die on a cross, that's that's for the biggest losers in society. This guy's going to come and deliver us and all this. This is their train of thinking, their mode of thinking, their default mode. And so these guys thought that way. You know, they wanted to see Israel, man, on top again. And so maybe it was some of their nationalistic zeal that was kind of causing them to say, hey, are you going to go down and do what we believe you're supposed to do? Or maybe, and this is the interesting one that I thought of, I guess they're all interesting, but this one, man, I was like, yeah, maybe it's this. Maybe they wanted to know when Jesus was going to restore the kingdom because they were going to receive some kingdom blessings through that time. Uh, I... I suspect that their true motive uh, was probably pulled from or derived from a little bit of three and four, the zeal and then the personal blessing. I think that's probably why uh, they asked this question. It, there's no doubt that they wanted so badly for Israel to be de, you know, delivered from all their enemies by this Messiah, by the Messiah, and they had been taught that from birth, as I said, and they pretty much believed that the Messiah would do that, and, and yet they also wanted to receive the kingdom blessings that Jesus promised them. I don't know if you're aware of this or if you picked up on this, but if you look like back in Matthew 19, 28, Jesus promised that the disciples would receive thrones in the kingdom. Like when he comes and establishes his kingdom, he deals with his enemies and he comes and sets up his millennial reign. And these disciples would actually, apostles, I guess at that point, would receive their own thrones and they would judge the nation of Israel, the 12 tribes with him. Wow. Talk about a bonus feature of following Christ, right? I mean, okay, I, yeah, I'm blessed by you. I've got the Holy Spirit in me. Life has changed. What a blessing that is. But you're saying that I actually get a throne? Uh, could you set up the kingdom yesterday? That sounds amazing. I'm all over that like a cheap suit. Let's hook that up, right? I mean, who wouldn't feel like, man, the sooner he does this, the faster I get my throne, right? I mean, doesn't that not appeal to the flesh? Throne, throne, throne. That's all I mean. I'd be walking with Jesus. Everything he's teaching, throne. Jesus, 
you must pick, take up your cross throne. I mean, every, it just, I, would, I would be in throne mode. I mean, that's just kind of my, the futility of my flesh. And so I think that it was a little bit of that zeal, a little bit of that desire to see the, you know, the nation of Israel uh, restored. And then I think the big motivator there, there was what we can get out of it when you do it. Now, as I was talking about, I mentioned the transfiguration a little bit. Uh, back in Luke 9, 28 to 33, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the Mount of Olives where he was transfigured. Now, Peter was, this is an amazing thing if you go back and read this text. It just, it's mind-blowing. But during this whole experience with Jesus being like kind of transformed to some degree into this glorious body, like this future of who he'll be, Peter was absolutely filled with zeal for Israel to the point where he actually spoke up and, and made a complete moron of himself. He spoke up and he, he, he made a horrible uh, suggestion that ended with a divine rebuke. And uh, I want to just look at that text briefly so I can kind of continue to build a case for why I think they answered this question or asked this question. Let's take a look at it back over in uh, Luke 9, 28 to 33. You can turn there if you'd like. <clears throat> it says... Now about eight days after these sayings, he took, that's Jesus, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. So it looks like the, they're thinking, hey, we're going on another one of those little prayer trips. So he takes them up there to pray. And, and then it says this, interesting. It says, as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. And, and I think some, in the original there, it's metamorphosis. It changed. It, 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 it metamorphosed. Um, and his clothing became, uh, became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him. And then Luke identifies these two guys as, as Moses and Elijah. Pretty, pretty cool. These two guys kind of come back and were meeting with him. And, and it says, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which was about to, uh, he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now, Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep. And I love that. That's an, sort of an idiom for not so much as that they were really tired from doing all kinds of stuff, but they were dense in their thinking. They weren't picking up on what was actually playing out. A lot of times when you see they're tired or there's fear in those kinds of things, that's actually what it means. It means ignorance. And so I think what's happening is they're watching this play out and they're, they're tired with sleep, meaning they don't quite get what's happening. They're like, duh, this is amazing, but I don't understand it. And it says, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Moses and Elijah were going, Peter said to Jesus, this is where he just was impetuous and couldn't hold his tongue, Master, it is good that we are here. It is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one free Elijah, and then Luke adds, not knowing what he said. That's the duh part factor there. Now, here's what's amazing about this experience, this little event that happened in the gospel. Some scholars say that Peter's request to set up tents was a call to arms. Some of you may have never heard that before. I hadn't until I studied this years ago. Some scholars believe, because there's actually military language used here in the Greek, that this was a call to set up arms. Hey, let's set up these tents. That's a call to arms. Now, before a battle, the highest-ranking military 
uh, leaders or officials would set up tents so that they could meet with their captains for planning and strategizing. This is what the Jews did throughout the Old Testament. Before they're about to battle the Philistines, before they're about to battle the Amalekites, whoever it is that they're about to lay the smackdown on, they set up tents and the highest ranking officials meet with their captains. They plan and strategize and they figure out how to win the battle. This is a common thing that happens in, in the scriptures. Now, it could be that Peter believed that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah were the generals and that James, John, and himself were the captains. And he probably thought that he would probably go with Jesus and James would probably go with Moses and John would go with Elijah. This is probably what's happening in the text. Oh, you've got the, you've got the two big dogs with you here. You've got Moses and Elijah, and we know who you are. Let's set up t- some tents so we can meet with you and plan on how to descend this mountain and go down and dethrone Rome and get rid of the, you know, the Herodians and all the other people that are obstacles and have been for the last couple of centuries. Very, very, very interesting. Now, a little later in uh, Luke 9, it says that God the Father rebuked Peter for his irreverence for his impetuosity and for his lack of insight. Basically, God told him, shut up and listen to my son. We're not setting up to go down and play command and conquer. And don't you ever, ever place Moses and Elijah at the same level as my son. He is my son. Listen to him. It's an amazing thing that takes place. Now, there is an incredible principle Uh, that is laden in verse 6 that we need to learn and apply here. And that principle is how personal desire can basically generate blindness. The disciples uh, were pretty much fixed on what they wanted. Okay? We go back to the Mount of Olives at this moment. They're on the mountain, and they're in their last moments with Jesus, and they ask Him the question, will you go and set up and restore the kingdom? They did this, I believe, from a a personal desire. And what happens is that personal desire really blinded them from the bigger truths. And and if you look at the Gospels, you'll see this throughout all of Jesus' ministry and interaction with these guys. So often that their own personal desire to see the Israel restored or to receive their blessings or whatever it is, so often that comes in and it really blinds them from receiving and seeing and understanding the truth that Jesus had for them. And isn't that how it is with us at times? It absolutely is. Their zeal and their place in the kingdom, I believe, had become more important to them than the truth of God the will of God, the plan of God, and the timing of God. How inappropriate to ask, are you going to go down and do this now from this bird's eye view up on the Mount of Olives? Now, again, if you read the Gospels, you'll see that they do this stuff over and over and over. Uh, One great instance of this is where Jesus says, I think it was for the second time at this point during His ministry, that I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to be beaten and I'm going to be killed and I'm going to rise again. And what happens? Peter, filled with personal desire to see Jesus dethrone the Romans, to see Him get rid of the Pharisees, get rid of that false religious system, whatever it is, filled with personal desire, what does he do when he hears Jesus say, this is the way that I'm going to go out? This is the way that your king's going to go out. He says, Lord, I'll never let it happen. He jumps in front of Him and says, I'll defend you. They'll never do that to you. What does Jesus say to him? You failed to understand the gospel. You failed to understand what I must do. Get behind me, Satan, is what he says. There's another great 
uh, episode of this, if you will, in that at some point in the ministry of Jesus, the disciples are with him, two of these guys, James and John, filled with personal desire to receive their blessings from Christ in the future kingdom or in the moment, they actually persuade and talk their mother into going to Jesus and asking if they can take God's seat in the kingdom. Oh, can you put me on the right and put me on the left of Jesus? Mom, go talk him into that. And what does Jesus say? You know not what you ask. I cannot offer you that or give you that. That is by the Father's choice that that has happened. Filled with personal desire, they do that. Again and again and again in the Scripture, we see these men and others overwhelmed and captivated by what they want, thus blinding them from the truth of the gospel, thus blinding them from the commands of Christ, the calling of Christ. What about Judas Iscariot? Was he not a disciple? Was he not blinded by personal desire, by zeal for Israel, by personal desire to be wealthy? You know, he was a thief. He kept taking, shaving off the offering that people were bringing and putting a little bit in his own coin bag. Was he not blinded by his own personal desire up to the point of fully rejecting Christ? Up to the point of betraying Christ? up to the point of being filled with incredible guilt that the gospel could have washed away, up to being filled with the, to the point of incredible guilt to where he hangs himself in a field that he bought. You just, you just see this over and over and over in Scripture. You see it over and over in Scripture, personal desire creating blindness where we can't understand the truth of God. The Bible's filled with these stories and these experiences, and these principles, and these examples. Now, in what ways has personal desire blinded us from the truth of the gospel? Think about that for a moment. For some of you, it could be uh, your personal desire to be blessed. You know, you want so badly to be blessed by Jesus that you don't listen to Him anymore and understand what He says and what He teaches what he wants in any given moment. There are entire denominations within the Christian faith that do this. It's all about the blessing of Jesus, not the will of Jesus. Just turn on TV. Just watch some of these TV preachers. I don't care. I'm not afraid to name them. Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes for the most part. They're all focused on what they can receive at any given moment from the Savior, more so than actually hearing what He commands and what He wants and taking up your cross and personal sacrifice, not these stinking earthly mansions and all these things that we're proclaiming that you can get. It's incredible to me. Personal desire creates blindness in our lives. It does. For some of you, it could be your personal desire to gratify your flesh. You know, in a group this size, it just could be that, I mean, this happens to Christians all the time too, but for those who are outside of Christ, it's all about gratifying the flesh. I know two-thirds of my life was spent out of Christ. And, and, and I could not hear the gospel. I could not see the gospel. I could not accept the gospel. I could not accept 
the commands of Christ. I couldn't do any of those things. Why? Because the flesh was a powerful thing. My desire to gratify my body, my flesh, my desires, what I wanted. Man, it completely blinded me from the truth of Christ. And all people who are outside of Christ are blind right now. And you know what? Some of us Christians start getting into the whole flesh thing and, and all of a sudden it's more about gratifying the flesh and doing this and satisfying our bodies in these things. And, and now we're blind from hearing and seeing what God would have for us, what He would want, what He requires. It happens all the time, doesn't it? For some of you, it could be your personal desire to preserve your religious upbringing. This is absolutely what the disciples wrestled with. Obviously, with the personal flesh and all those things too, with all of them. But man, these guys had a religious upbringing in Judaism that said, when the Messiah comes, he's going to conquer and rule and you're going to get what you want and Israel's going to be glorified again and all that. This is something they heard over and over and over. So guess what? They kept trying to layer that over what Jesus taught. This, this was the filter that they heard and saw the gospel through. It always came back to preserving their religious upbringing. It's what happens. That's what religion does. Religion is the great scourge on humanity. I would rather be someone outside of Christ and irreligious and not know about religion than be someone outside of Christ and to be uber-religious because it seems like deliverance from religion is like almost impossible. And yet it's not with Christ. And for some of you, you just have traditions and things in your life that you grew up with. And, and, and guess what? Maybe you need to ask yourself. Maybe they're not all that biblical. Maybe they're not grounded in the gospel. And, 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 and you cling to these things. I, I, I know. I know how it works. I write things on Facebook, and I have guys come at me full force over stuff. And, and some people are so close-minded to, to different uh, parts of the gospel and things because they've just heard something over and over and over, and it's been pounded and pumped into them, and they cannot receive the truth of God. They're blind to it because of what they've been taught. Close-mindedness in the church is... is it's pandemic. We just, we just don't hear what God says. We don't see what God says. And we take action upon what we've taught over and over and over and over. And we dispel the word of God. We dispel the commands of Christ. We, we malign the gospel. We manipulate the gospel. We manipulate the word of God according to our traditions to say what we want it to say. These guys are on the mountain. Are you going to do that thing? Is that, that you're supposed to? My mom told me. Wow. In a similar way, for some of you, it could be, you know, your desire to protect your theology. You have a particular theology, understanding of the truth of God, the gospel, and all these things. And it's similar to religion. I guess it is religion in some way, shape, or form. But it's like, well, I believe the Bible says this, and this is exactly what it means. And I know there's a whole lot of other perspectives out there on it by pretty good guys. But no, I'm going to do all that I can to cling to what I've been taught by so-and-so or by so-and-him or so-and-her or whatever, and that's my theology, and I'm sticking to it. Don't you dare threaten that and come to me. Do you know how much theology blinds people from the gospel? 
wow. I just got a certain way, things that I believe, and I cling to that, and don't you mess with that. And I know the Word of God says this, but so-and-so says it means this, and that's what I'm running with. And nine times out of ten we do that. That's because what so-and-so said really caters to our flesh. It makes us feel good about ourselves. And so, therefore, we now reject the gospel. We now reject the Word of God based upon our own desire. And these are huge problems in the church today. Will be until Christ returns. And, man, I love how Jesus responds to them in verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. You want me to give you my street translation of this? Hey guys, don't concern yourselves with when I will restore the kingdom to Israel. That's not what you're to focus on. It's essentially what he says. You don't need to worry about when I'm going to restore the kingdom to Israel. This was an admonishment, an exhortation with a little bit of a lash to it here. Hey, don't you ask me that right now. That's not what you're focusing on. Now, when I read this, I was reminded of all the people. I have Yahoo's written, but I'm going to be a little kinder. Gospel. People, I was reminded when I read this of all the people who have come throughout all of history and tried to calculate when Jesus will return. How many prophecy conferences have there been where men stand in a pulpit and say, well, if you look at this olive tree and you do this equation and then you look at this and then you add up the six figures in Genesis and you do this, Jesus is going to come back on that date. I mean, can all the millions of dollars and time and hours that have been spent trying to calculate when he's going to come back? Are you kidding me? Oh, people like Harold Camping? I think his brain is camping. I mean, and he's never right. It's October this, and it doesn't happen. I was psych. I mean, he just issues a psych. Psych. It's this date. Joseph Smith, the founder of the Mormon religion. Do you realize that guy? Do you realize that that guy tried to figure out when Jesus would come and said it about a thousand times? He also wrote about 3,000 different uh, prophecies or whatever that are in the Book of Mormon, and all 3,000 of them have been basically thrown out, and they've all been redone because none of them came true. This man actually said that when people of color, black folks... Believe in Jesus, they'll turn white as snow. (laughs) Black preachers are some of my favorite ones. They love Jesus like crazy, and they're still black. (laughs) Joseph Smith spent countless hours trying to figure out and trying to put a chronology together of when Jesus would return. And then how about Charles Taze Russell, the founder of Jehovah's Witnesses? The whole system is built on end times. I don't know if you knew that or not. The whole Jehovah's Witness, the whole Watchtower movement is based upon when Jesus is going to come back and what that's going to look like. And guess what? Taze Russell projected, I don't know how many times, that Jesus would return on this date and on this date and on that date, and it never happened. 
and never will according to his calculations. And then Ellen G. White, too, she's the founder of the Seventh-day Adventist movement. And some say that there are brothers and sisters in Christ, and there are probably some in there that are, but a seven-year-old girl gets a revelation from God and now a religion is built on that? I've had seven-year-olds in my house. The one thing they can reveal is when the pizza's ready. Really? And, and, and she is well. And, and so many Seventh-day Adventists have come. And just drive by a Seventh-day Adventist church. I bet you on the little uh, marquee sign, it says Prophecy Conference, June 8th. I mean, that's all they focus on. Well, I guess it's not all they focus on, but it's probably about half of it. All the prophecy conferences, all the religions, all the so-called denominations, all these things have been based upon trying to figure out when Christ will come back. There's been hundreds, if not thousands, of those prophecy conferences. I mean, people are obsessed with the end times. The church is obsessed with end times. I read in a book one time, it was really funny. This guy, literally, and he was serious, and he said, the surest way to grow your church numerically is to host an end times prophecy conference. You'll pack your place out if you start doing end times prophecy conferences. Because people want to come and they want to hear all that stuff and they want to know when he's coming so they can build a bunker and load it with stuff. Now, I'm not saying that eschatology or end time study isn't important because I believe it is, but true eschatology has nothing to do with trying to figure out the exact time and season of the Lord's return. It has nothing to do with it. You don't sit there and try to calculate those things. Investing time in trying to figure out when he'll return is an offense to God. It is an offense to God for two key reasons. Reason number one, it undermines His authority. It undermines His authority. What did Jesus say in verse 7? He said, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by what? His own authority. It's offensive when we sit down here and try to figure out and try to calculate these things. Because guess what? That's God's job. That's His business. That's His responsibility. That's what He's sovereign over. He's fixed those things. He's done it. And we're down here trying to play Him. What an offense. Another reason why it's offensive to Him is because it chews up time that could be spent spreading the gospel. The, all the hours and the thousands of hours and conferences and all these things and all the stuff, these are, this, this is time that could be spent on reaching the lost with the gospel. It could be time spent studying the gospel that we may have more of an inflamed heart for God and a passion to go out and serve for Him. To invest in those things is an offense to God, and it, it, it just chews up time that we could be spent on the things that truly matter, on the commission that He gave us. The church has not been commissioned by God to decode and decipher every biblical mystery, especially eschatological ones. That is not what the church has been commissioned to do. It has not. There are just some things in Scripture that will be mysterious the duration of our life. We will not understand certain things. And to try to figure them out and to spend time trying to figure them out is just foolish because we've now left the gospel. The 
church has been commissioned by God to train the saints for the ministry of the gospel and to reach the world for Jesus Christ. Whenever a church strays from that biblical mandate, the Great Commission, it ceases to be a church. And sometimes churches do that momentarily where they get off track and they start doing all this stuff or they start preaching all these sermon series on works righteousness and how to embedder your life and do these six things and it equals this and all this junk and all this hypotheses and hypothetical stuff. And then we get on all these, all these uh, last end times things and all this eschatological things and all that. And, and man, when, when we're wrapped up in that stuff, we're not being the church, man, because we've left the commission. So what did Jesus tell the disciples? He said, forget about it, right? Forget about it. You want to know what I'm going to set up? Forget about it. That's not what you're to focus on. That's not what's important. Now look at 8, and he's going to give them what they're to focus on. He's going to teach them. He's going to command them right now in this very verse. This is where you put your time. This is where you put your focus He says, but you will receive power, power here, dunamis, dynamite power, when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Jesus told the disciples that spreading the gospel through the power of the Holy Spirit was going to be their task, goal, and focus Jesus didn't only say that, basically, but he also, (laughs) the way he laid it out, he planned to keep them very, very busy for the rest of their lives because he said, you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem. That's going to take some time. Jerusalem's a pretty big place. A couple million people show up there for Passover every year. Lots of people to talk to year in and year out. Big time ministry there in Jerusalem. And then he says, in Judea and Samaria, this will take more time. Some of you guys will spend the rest of your life doing gospel-focused ministry, gospel-centered ministry right in Jerusalem, but some of you guys are going to go out and go to Judea and Samaria, and that's going to take some time too. And then he says, and to the ends of the earth. And guess what? This will take the rest of your lives and beyond. Basically what Jesus is saying is, you're not ever going to have time to try to figure out when I'm coming back. You're going to be busy bringing the gospel to these different districts and these areas and to the ends of the earth. He didn't leave him time to focus on other things, did he? No, he did not. And if you read through the rest of the book of Acts, and obviously if you read through the epistles and the other letters of the New Testament, you will see that the disciples, then apostles, really did nothing other than minister with the gospel. Minister with the gospel. That's what they did. These men were resolved and determined to obey the Lord by getting the gospel out there, and they worked tirelessly at it. Why do you think the church exploded in the first century? Well, of course, it was Jesus that exploded the church, but who was he working through? A bunch of doorknobs just like us. A bunch of Galilean fishermen. 
The church exploded in the first century because of the power of the Holy Spirit in common, regular, average men and lay people and folks. And they were focused on the gospel and getting it out there. They weren't distracted by trying to calculate and do these things and all that and hosting marriage conferences and all that. And not that those are inherently bad, but they can be atrocious. I mean, the church was absolutely focused on getting the gospel out there and therefore it exploded. Ephesus was turned upside down. I mean, it was just like Ephesus, ah, pagan worship, we're all into our stuff. And then Paul comes in and plants a church and it explodes in riots because of the gospel. Today, a lot of pastors are more focused on retirement so that they can play golf or lay out by the pool. You know, instead of putting in work in the Word of God and in their communities, they're busy managing their investments in 401ks. I've met pastors that they're all about that day when they're released of their ministerial duty and now they can go chill. I don't see chill in the commands of Christ. I see take up your cross now until the end. And it's not just pastors. It's lay people and average Christians and all that. It just, Jesus did not say, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be able to spend much of your time trying to figure out when I will return. Wait, let me read verse 8 again. That's not what he said in verse 8. Jesus did not say, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be able to spend much of your time hitting little white balls on tees with clubs. Oh, I'm sure there's a little room in there for us to have some leisure. But the amount of time that some guys put in on golf, Christians and pastors, are you kidding me? That's all you do? Well, well, yeah, but I preach the gospel on a golf course. No, you don't, you don't praise God when you spike a ball. <laughs> you say other things. Jesus did not say, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be able to spend much of your time in front of your television. Show's on tonight. That's Tebow. That's why he created Tebow for crying out loud. (laughs) For some of you younger guys, because the biggest demographic for this is 20 to 35, and it, it blows my mind, but... Jesus did not say you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You'll be able to spend a whole lot of your time on your PS3 or your Xbox 360 or your whatever. The amount of time that that Christians invest on playing games, video games. I I know, I'm guilty, man. I used to do that all the time. It's just amazing how much time we spend in front of the TV, how much time we spend gaming. Yes, but I have friends over and I share the gospel with them while I'm playing the game. You just cut his head off. You just hit him with a samurai sword. Well, I prayed with him before I hit him with it. Jesus did not say you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be able to spend much of your time working on your classic car or whatever it is. We just, isn't it amazing how much time we invest? in things that really aren't gospel-related, that really aren't about the Great Commission? Jesus didn't say any of those things. He said, but when you receive power, 
but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be what? My witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I love what William Barclay uh, said about that little text there. He said, the second coming of Christ is not a matter for speculation. And for a curiosity, that is quite out of place. It is a summons to make ourselves ready for that day when it comes. Man, when we read that text, when we read what Jesus is talking about here, man, that should prompt us to be ready for His return. And not just for us to be personally ready, but to ready the world. Because guess what? It ain't going to be pretty for those who are outside of Christ when He returns. It's going to be horrible. And so we've got to go out and proclaim the gospel and train in the gospel and disciple in the gospel, disciple in the gospel, proclaim the gospel. We should be in a state of desperation to get it out there. He could come at any time. We have no idea when. Harold Camping doesn't. I mean, it's supposed to prompt us to make ourselves ready for that day when he comes and to get this world prepared. How do you get that world prepared? Preach the gospel, man. Love on people. Care for people. Minister to people. Teach them about Christ. Help them understand where they're at and that we have a king that conquered all the junk they're mixed up in. The second coming of Christ isn't a matter for speculation, but a call to ready ourselves in the world for his return. How can we ready ourselves and the world if we spend most of our time on leisure hobbies, our portfolios, or on other things? We cannot. I'm not saying that there isn't a moment for that. You should take a vacation. But for crying out loud, if you just evaluate yourself, you probably are like me in a lot of ways, because I'm guilty here. You put a lot of time in a lot of areas that just aren't helping to do anything for the gospel. Now look at that. This is amazing. Look at that word witnesses in the text. In the Greek, the word for witnesses and the word for martyr is the same. It's martis. There is a danger in verse 8. The verse could be rendered, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be what? My martyrs in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Being a witness for Christ in the first century meant being ready to become a martyr. And it means it today in many places in the world, in the Sudan, Iran, North Korea, parts of China. It's dangerous to be in the gospel, to be in Christ in some places. I think it should be a little more dangerous for us here, but we're just too afraid to speak up. Being in a witness for Christ, man, it means being ready for anything. Jesus was a little prophetic in this text because most of these guys that he was speaking to were martyred. After replacing Judas Iscariot with Matthias, we'll read about that shortly in Acts, the 12 went out and spread the gospel like wildfire. And guess what? 11 of them were killed for it. 
Peter was crucified upside down in Rome. James, the brother of John, was beheaded at Jerusalem. Andrew was crucified in Greece. Philip was martyred at Heropolis. Bartholomew was whipped to death in Armenia. Matthew was put to the sword in Ethiopia. Thomas was stabbed with a spear in India. James, the son of Alphaeus, was thrown down the southern pinnacle of the temple in Jerusalem over 100 feet. Thaddeus was crucified in Edessa. Simon the Zealot was crucified in Britain of all places. Matthias was stoned and beheaded. These guys really were Jesus' witnesses and martyrs. They went out at any cost, and 98% of them paid the ultimate price. They gave their life for the gospel. What a glorious reward that they received when they stood face to face with their master and king. Let's look at 9. It says, When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. Luke has mentioned the ascension two times, and that's basically what this is. He has mentioned it two times in the first nine verses of the chapter we've been studying. The ascension is a central theme in Luke's writings and in the New Testament. The ascension is the doctrine that describes three very important things. How Jesus left our world after his resurrection, where Jesus is currently at, and what Jesus has done throughout history, as well as what he's doing today. Those are all theological truths and perspectives and angles that have to do with the ascension. Other passages on the doctrine of ascension would be like Mark 16, 19, John 1, 1 to 3, John 17, 5, Luke 9, 51, Acts 7, 56, Ephesians 3, 9, Philippians 2, 8 to 9, 1 Timothy 3, 16, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, Hebrews 12, 2. And the entire book of Revelation is filled with these sayings and teachings and insights to the ascended Christ who is seated on his throne and what he'll do. We see him judging the seven churches in the beginning of the book of Revelation. Then we see him opening the seven seals a little later. And then later on from there, we see him testifying. We hear him testifying to his return. Bottom line, the ascension is all over the New Testament. But sadly, the ascension is probably one of the most neglected doctrines in Christianity, especially Western Christianity. I was at my last church for 10 years and never heard one sermon on it, not one. Aaron was sharing with me this last week that he, out of the 30-plus years that he's been a believer in attending churches, he's never heard one sermon on the doctrine of ascension. Have you ever heard a sermon on the doctrine of ascension? Maybe. If you came... Several weeks ago, we kicked off our series with one, didn't we? For some of you, that may have been the first one that you ever heard. That's the first one I ever heard, and I taught it. (laughs) Did you know that in the month of May, there's a Christian holiday called Ascension Day? I'm a moron. I had no idea that existed. Oh, no, I've got Christmas down and Easter and I kind of understand Lent. I don't know. Don't eat this and that. I, I, I can't stop eating. I mean, I got the gospel, man. I can eat what the heck I want. 
pork chops all day. There's a holiday called Ascension Day. It's just not, I mean, in some states it's recognized and held up. In some parts of the world it is. But it's not something that we really recognize and celebrate, do we? No, it's a Christian holiday. Now listen carefully. The doctrine of ascension is one of the most important doctrines in Christianity. And the reason is because Jesus, or the Bible, literally teaches that Jesus came from somewhere else. In John 18, and I'll flush this out real good for you and you'll get it. In John 18, 33 to 35, Pontius Pilate asked Jesus if he was king of the Jews, and he said yes. But he said, my kingdom is not of this world. John 3.17, love that passage, 3.16, What did he say? What does the text say? It says, for God did not send his son. Send, what does that infer? What does that mean? It means he came from somewhere else. In John 20.21, Jesus said that the Father had sent him, sent Gospel of John says that Jesus came from somewhere else over 30 times. Jesus' teachings and miracles testified to the fact that He came from somewhere else. No one in all of history has done the things that He did. He stopped a storm, raised the dead, fed thousands from next to nothing, healed multitudes from leprosy, demon possession, and so on, and so on, and so on. Even some of the Pharisees believed that He had come from somewhere else because of His extraordinary teaching. And here's where the rubber meets the road. The Bible teaches that Jesus came from somewhere else. We've established that. But there is only one event that proves it and cannot be denied, and that event is the ascension. The ascension shows that Jesus returned to where He came from. You might be thinking, well, He did all those other things, and that certainly shows that He was from somewhere else. Yes, very true, but the world has been rejecting and maligning and denying those things for centuries. When Jesus performed miracles, they called Him a magician. When Jesus did things, they, when Jesus did all this extraordinary amount of things, they claimed that He was from Beelzebub. When Jesus was resurrected, the Pharisees cooked up a scheme to spread a rumor that said that the, His disciples had stolen His body in the middle of the night, and that's really what happened. You see, it's pretty easy for people to reject and to deny the things that Jesus did, the miraculous things, all those things. It's pretty easy for them to do that. But you, and you, I guess suppose you could reject the ascension to some degree, but there's witnesses that saw it. The ascension proves that He came from somewhere else because the ascension shows that He went back to that place. And what about all the science and stuff throughout all the centuries? How hard has science worked to reject the things that Christ did? What about philosophy and logic and all of those things? Do you see how sinful men have used things to reject what Christ has done, what He did? The ascension is like an impenetrable wall of truth that proves that Jesus came from somewhere else. It cannot be scaled, detoured, or brought down by the world's greatest skeptics, scientists, or philosophers. Now, why is it important 
Why is this doctrine of ascension so important? First of all, because it proves that he went back to where he had come from. But why is that so important? Why is it so important to prove that Jesus came from somewhere else? This is why, don't miss this, because the Savior of our world had to come from somewhere else. All had been lost through one earthly man, Adam. Therefore, restoration had to be made by another man, but not just any man. It had to be a special man, a man who could perfectly fulfill God's law, a man who could perfectly meet God's standards of righteousness, a man who could completely satisfy God's justice and wrath through his sacrifice. No mere human could meet those expectations. And so God sent us one who could. He sent his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, the God-man from heaven. The ascension is the undeniable proof that Jesus came from another place, a special place called heaven, because it shows that he returned there. The ascension proves that Jesus is still active in saving people, in interceding for the saints, in pouring out divine power in the world, in governing the affairs of creation from His throne of grace, and, through the, and also through the teaching that He does through faithful ministers of the gospel. The ascension includes all of those things. Without the ascension of Jesus Christ, Jesus becomes just another earthly man who taught and did some good things. And this is also why the doctrine of ascension is so, so very, very important. Let's look at our last verses, 10 and 11. The text says, And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who, has, who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And the disciples were there watching him go up. What a sight that must have been. Who were these men in white robes that stood beside them and, and talked with them? I, I think that they were the same two guys that appeared during the transfiguration, Moses and Elijah. Moses represented God's law because God issued the law through him. And Elijah represented the ministry of the prophets because God spoke about the coming Messiah through those prophets. Now, Jesus fulfilled the law and all the prophecies that had to be fulfilled by him while he was here, hundreds of them. Scholars believe that this is why God sent Moses and Elijah to Jesus at the transfiguration. These two represented the law and prophets, and, 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 and Jesus was about to fulfill two facets of that ministry, the law and the prophet, prophetic ministry. It could be a similar thing in our text that's playing out with these two men in white robes. One of the main differences is that the two in white came to interact with disciples, not with Jesus. See, at Transfiguration, they came and spoke with Jesus. But here, they're speaking with the disciples. And how did they speak with them? How did they interact with them? They encouraged them. They told them that Jesus would return the same way that He was leaving in the future. 
Interestingly, this passage is, is linked to the passage that Bruce, one of our elders, read earlier, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 to 18. I want to read 16 to 17 again for you. It says, For the Lord Himself will, will descend from heaven with a cry, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. That passage is about the rapture of the church, which will take place before God pours out His judgment and wrath on this world. The text says that Jesus will descend through the clouds just as He ascended through the clouds during His ascension. It says that the dead in Christ will be resurrected and brought to Him, and that the alive in Christ, those who are living, will fly up to Him as well. I think my favorite part of that text has to be one of the most encouraging pieces of Scripture in all of Scripture. And it comes at the end of 17, and it says, And so we will always be with the Lord. That's our hope. Our hope is to be with the Lord forever. Now, I want to give you guys just a little bit of time to spend with the Lord right now as we take communion together. This is a great time for you to slip off somewhere right into your chair. Well, I mean, there's not a lot of places you can slip off in here. But you can just sit there and you can spend some time with Jesus Christ. And here's what you can do and here's what you should do because this is what communion is. Communion was established that we may spend time remembering the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's why He established it. He said, do this in remembrance of me. And that very night, He was betrayed and judged unfairly. And then early the next morning, he was bludgeoned and beaten and whipped within an inch of his life. Had to drag a 100 or 200 pound cross up to Golgotha. And then he was nailed to that cross. That's what we remember during communion. The finished work of Jesus Christ, what He did on Calvary. We don't have to earn our salvation. We don't have to work for it. We don't have to do anything but believe. Believe in what He did and trust Him. And trust Him. And we've been encouraged today in a further way to trust Him. We've learned about the doctrine of ascension, and these other things. We can go off and ponder the cross during communion, the finished work of Jesus, and we can, we can relish in and thank Him during that time for what we've learned today as well. So let's do that. Let's spend some time with Him. And I have to say that communion is for the Lord's people. If you are not in Christ, I pray that you would throw yourself at the mercy seat of Christ and receive Him as your Savior. But if you're not in Christ, do not take communion. It is for the Lord's people. I mean no offense by that. But that's the way that it is. And that's what God has said. And that is what He's declared. So you can sit back and 
and just watch what God's people do as they get with Christ. Let me pray for us. And just so you know, the elements are in the back over there. And you can get the elements and take them. We're not going to take them together. You can take them as you please. Father, thank you for what we've learned today. God, you've, you've helped to strengthen my faith, my faith just by being able to really look at one key doctrine that's in Scripture there, the ascension and how that proves that Jesus went back to where He had come from. That is so important and key to the gospel and to understanding the Scriptures. Without it, we're just, we don't have anything. Thank you for your grace and for your teaching and for your mercy in that. And most of all, Jesus, I want to thank you for the cross. Thank you that you came and you lived. I want to thank you for the gospel, Jesus. You came and lived a perfect life of obedience to the law. You fulfilled all those things. You did what I could never do and what I should never attempt to do. You came and did that. And then you took all my sin, shame, and guilt, and condemnation, and God's wrath, and judgment on me, which was all due, you took it all on yourself. You took all my junk and you imputed to me your righteousness, your perfect righteousness. Man, I thank you for that. May we never, as a church, forget that. Because our default mode is works righteousness. We'll leave this place and we'll be tempted to please you through our actions. We'll be tempted to earn our way. We'll be tempted to earn our salvation. God, may we not resort to that. May we rest in the work that you have done. You're the one that's done the work. All of it. May we relish in that now and rejoice in what you've done. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.